Hi, my name is Brian Wallace, and my wife Lisa is in the back. We're really grateful that you are here today, and grateful that this church has welcomed me on my very first full day of being a bishop. Um, I'm getting used to wearing all of this stuff, <laughs> and, um, and I'm really deeply grateful that I get to serve God's church. It's the hope for all of us to hear the gospel through the church of God. And your church is the hope of this community that so desperately needs the message of life and mercy and love that we've all received. Amen? You are the message and the vessel through which that message gets to be preached. Uh, when Father John asked me to preach this day, uh, the day after my consecration, uh, I immediately knew the passage I needed to go to, and I knew that this morning I would be preaching to myself more than to you. As we take a look at Psalm 131, and as we've listened to it sung already, we have an invitation to a new way of life, not one of power, not one of pride, not one of... Uh, dignity, but one of humble servant trust in the Lord. So I want to take us to Psalm 121, and I want to take you back to the very first moments I ever encountered it. Um, on my first memory of, of, of this encounter with this psalm was about 28 years ago. I was a young senior leader with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, I was a really young man, and I was leading a really important young staff team uh, we had a growing up-and-coming region in the country, and I was restarting ministry in both Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Things were on the move. I thought I was on the move, and it was getting in my head. My boss, a, a man named Doug Stewart, was coming to town, and we were going to spend an entire day at a friend's lake house where he was going to, I hoped, teach me how to be a great leader, to go from good to great. That's what I was hoping for, that he was going to give me the requisite skills I needed to lead and to receive more authority and more leadership and more power. Uh, I had my set sight, set, sight set pretty high. But in instead, as soon as we got to the, my friend's lake house, Doug sat me on the back porch in a chair and handed me a single piece of paper with the words Psalm of 131 on it. He said, read this for a while. I'm going for a walk. I'll be back in a couple of hours. So I had two hours to read and reread the shortest Psalm in the Bible. <laughs> My friend Jonathan's back there. He knows Doug really well. He goes, yep, that's something Doug would do. And um, he came back and we discussed it over lunch. And then he repeated the pattern two more times. I was alone with the psalm for more than six hours that day. And I confess, I didn't get it, and I was really angry. Not one word sunk into my life. And again, I was really frustrated. On my way back to the house, I became cross and argumentative with Doug and said, hey, I need training in leadership. Don't you know what burden I have of leadership that's around my cross? Don't you know the potential you're supposed to build into me and make come out of me? Why did we waste the day reading just three verses of the Bible? I was mad and I was hurt and I was deeply worried that I would miss my chance to, to learn how to be a great leader. And I was certainly not still or quiet like the psalm would invite us to be. 
Doug listened to me, and with patience and deep love, he wasn't defensive or argumentative. He listened to my soul's cry. And when I was done with my venting and wrestling, he simply said to me, Brian, I'm not worried about your leadership. I think you will know what to do in the right time. But I'm very worried about your soul. So Doug, with expert love and tender leadership, used this psalm to invite me not into just caring for my own soul differently, but into a reframing of what I thought life was about and what it was reframing, I think, that has saved my life. That reframing just rescued me from me. It certainly saved me from me, saved me from reckless ambition, from runaway dreaming, and from my constant wrestling, constant striving, and honestly, constant anxiety. Now, I think this psalm has two ways that it works into our souls, and I want to talk about both of them. First, the psalm serves as a check on ourselves, what Eugene Peterson calls a pruning. It's a way of putting at bay our unruly ambitions. And the second thing it does is this psalm offers an irresistible invitation that we enter into rest, peace, and hope. Let's start with the first verse. It says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, many translations, and as we heard it read this and sung this morning, it says, my heart is not proud. And you know what we say about people who say they are not proud. No humble person would ever think that they don't have some little bit of pride left in them. The truly humble would never claim humility. They would actually probably claim pride. It's like our youngest son when he was just a toddler Anyway, where we'd go with him, whenever he got tired, he would just scream out from the back seat, I'm not tired. And we knew that was a dead giveaway. 20, 30 seconds, he'd be out. Right? When we declare, I'm not proud, it's a dead giveaway. So what is it? It doesn't make sense to declare in prayer that I'm not proud. My heart's not lifted up. So what's going on in the psalm? What's David doing? I think he's not the psalmist declaring a state of being as much as it is a decision to choose a way of being. When we pair the first half of the verse with the second, we begin to understand what's happening. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, David says. Now the psalmist is admitting that there are things that are way beyond him, things above his pay grade, so to speak. Again, I think it's a decision to a certain way of life, one that chooses to let God be God, and to take our place in the world that is in keeping with the most important truths about the way the world works. God's creator, and I'm a creation. God is eternal, and I'm temporal. God is perfect, and I'm imperfect. God is powerful, and I'm very, very limited. To pray this psalm is to decide to let God be God, to let him rule the universe, and let him rule my life. And let him provide for me day by day the things he thinks I need, not what I think I need. It's a decision not to set my sights on things that are beyond my grasp because God's the only one who can and should reach that far. 
Eugene Peterson renders the first verse this way, and it brings emphasis to this decision that I'm talking about. God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. You and I, friends, have no business trying to run the universe or even run this church or run our neighborhood or our families. It's too much for us. But this gets complicated when we understand that this psalm was written by King David. Again, what is beyond the pay grade of a king? It does, it does not think that he should think too highly of himself or involve himself in weighty matters. What business do any of us have in exerting ourselves into anything? The psalm is not an invitation to passivity, friends. The decision to take our place in the world under God is not to abandon our roles, our callings in the world, our vocations. We're called to be God's hands and feet in the world, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, protecting the widow and the orphan, and now me to proclaim the good news of God and protect God's people. We are still called to put our hands to the duties, tasks, and engagements of our various callings. Amen? But we're not to run the world on our own. That's God's job. And he's been doing it well before any of us were here. And he'll continue doing it well, well after we're gone. We may not understand what God's doing. We may not even like what he seems to be doing in the world or in our life. We may hate what's happening in our very specific context. But I'm not going to rule the roost. It's a decision to let God be God. I'm going to concern myself with what only God can really do and only what he can comprehend. I'm going to trust him to do that. It's too great, too marvelous, too big for me. But, but how do we go about living our lives and being faithful to our callings in a world without overstepping our bounds? That is a big challenge for me. And as I take on this new responsibility, this is the question I'm raising every day. How do I do my work without overstepping my bounds? I think it's helpful to understand how the Hebrew mind understands the nature of a day. For thousands of years, the Hebrew culture considered the day to begin when the sun went down. Our basic understanding is that the day begins when the sun comes up or when the alarm goes off or when I wake up. We center the, the day around our existence and energy. Think about our mindset if we shift our understanding to the start of the day being at sunset. The day does not begin with my activity, my agency, or my energy in the world. No, the day begins and I go to bed. It's like saying, I'm not the most important thing in the universe. God is. The day will begin with my inactivity, and the God who never sleeps will be at work ruling and reigning in the world, and he'll invite me into it if he needs me. That doesn't mean our work is unimportant. It just means that we are not. Our work is not primary. God is primary. And in the Hebrew concept of the day holds so much dignity and value for all of our participation in his work in the world. The unfolding of his rule and reign in your neighborhood and community, your family, your church. We wake up into a world in which God has already been at work while we were asleep. And we wake into his invitation to us 
this loving, joyful, free invitation to enter into his way and his work. Now, obviously, this is a very countercultural way of living, isn't it? You won't find this invitation in any of the business journals, self-help books, or Instagram influencers that you follow. The advice of the world is simple. Seize the day. Exert your power. Take charge of your life. God's inviting you to a different way, friends. As Peterson says, what is described in scripture is the basic sin, the sin of taking things into our own hands, being our own God, grabbing what is there while you can is now described in our culture as basic wisdom. And God is inviting you through this very simple psalm to say no. David, the author of the psalm, was a king. And remember, he had to wake up each morning and make decisions that influenced the political, social, religious, and family life of every single person in the country. Again, this psalm is not an invitation to passivity. The psalm is David's reminder to himself that while he's king, he's not God. It's a check on his ego. It's a check on his reckless ambitions. And it's a check on his runaway dreams for himself. And he knows about runaway dreams. He had some. He acted on them. And he was deeply dependent on the mercy and forgiveness of God. Rather, he wrote a psalm that's an invitation to humility. There's a way of going about your life under God and for God rather than for ourselves. This balance is hard. I have to admit it. It's really hard for me. Maintaining a proper relationship to my work and calling while not overstepping my bounds is for me a daily struggle and one that's been part of every day of my 39 years in ministry. I think it will continue in this first day of being a bishop and my second day of being a bishop and God willing, my 300th day of being a bishop. In part because I really care about the work I do. I really care about the people I serve. And so do you, I think. Your work has consequence, and so does mine. And there's issues going on in the world that really, really matter. Sometimes reminding myself that I'm not God is not enough to curb my appetite for success. I crave the feel-good sense of being noticed or praised. I think we all do. And we would like to put our hands on things and fix stuff that we think God's left broken. The next step for me in this process is to get still and to get quiet. Oh Lord, my heart's not proud and my eyes aren't raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me as a decision. So I will calm and quiet my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child will my soul be within me. Now again, calm and quiet doesn't come naturally in our world, does it? We live in the noisiest moment in human history. There is nothing naturally calm and quiet about my family, my job, my commute. All of life seems to awaken my inner infant and my soul gets noisy, unsettled, and fussy whenever stuff seems to go wrong. It takes work to get quiet. For most people, it's a deliberate choice that happens with planning and care and decision. It's a discipline, friends, to get quiet. It's a spiritual discipline. 
In my doctoral research, with, uh, I, I studied exemplary leaders from all over the, the world, people who were engaged in ministry and proclaiming the gospel and justice work all around the planet. And what was fascinating to me was all of these people I studied had simply one spiritual practice in common. They did a lot of spiritual practices, but all the exemplary leaders all did the same one thing. They took regular times of retreat. Part of their habit as leaders, their discipline in the world, was to remove themselves from their daily activity, to literally put the world on mute. They put their phones away. They put their music away. And they sat with the Lord and they sat with the scriptures. It was all so that they could cultivate the ability to hear the voice of Jesus. It's very hard to be quiet when holding a noisy phone that's constantly begging for your attention and sending you message about how your relative value in the world. It's also impossible with a, with a constant barrage of Fox News or CNN blaring from your television telling you what to believe. We need to silence the world and its messages about our values and securities that are rooted not in our Christ, but in the lies of the kingdom of the ruler of the age. Quiet and calm are not ignorant of real issues in the world. They simply do not let the world around them determine what's important, what's valuable, or what is true. Amen? I think this is the core challenge of all discipleship, fundamental to our relationships with God. Jesus talks about this in what's called the parable of the soils. There are four soils, you remember. The hard parent road where the, there is seed, the word of, and it can't penetrate. The word of God can't penetrate, the, and it's stolen by the birds. There's rocky soil where the seed sprouts up, but where there's little root and the trials of life burn it up. And then there's good soil where the plant can flourish and produce 30 or 60 or 100 times what was sown into the soil. And then there's the fourth soil. I want to talk about this one. The weedy soil, it says, where the plant grows up among the weeds, the lies of the world, really. It still lives, still produces a crop, but the real fruitfulness is choked out in competition with the weeds. I think this soil describes mo most of us in this room. This is endemic in American Christianity. Jesus' commentary in the weedy soil was that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things choke out our lives and make it unfruitful, unkingdom-like full of noise and fear and, and terror and power and pride and anger and violence. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things is loud in my life and I know it's loud in your life. It's like I was 27 years ago when I wanted more, more leadership, more skill, more notice, more power, more place, more understanding, more security. We all wrestle with this in some ways in our lives, right? If you're honest, I know you wrestle. And it does not take a careful reading of the word to know that the author of this psalm, David, wrestled with this too. He struggled with his family. It fell apart. He struggled with his temptations. He gave in. With the weight of all of his work, he lost it. And yet he chose in faith, to cultivate a life of quiet stillness. That's where he got himself back on the rails. It is the grown-up confidence of a relationship rooted 
in the kingdom of God who loves us. Can we take another quick trip into the Gospels, the passage that we heard this, read this morning uh, by Father John? There's a good example here for us too. In this Gospel, it's a good picture of the choices you and I each have to make. Jesus is at home with his friends, Mary and Martha, and his, as his custom in his home, Jesus was teaching while the meal was being prepared for the many last-minute guests that arrived. We learn that Mary is at Jesus' feet soaking in every word that she could get. Martha is a buzz of activity. Who would you be? Be honest. I'm almost always Martha. The, the passage says that she's distracted by all the preparations. Like many of us, she's weedy soil. She cares for the meal, the deceitfulness of the promise of the perfect evening and what it will bring to her in a relationship with God or maybe her relationship in her community. She has gotten herself tied in knots. What comes out of her is anger, hurt, competitiveness. Can you relate? Don't you care that Mary is leaving me to do all the work by myself? Martha had a choice, do you recognize? It was probably not the choice between making dinner or sitting at Jesus' feet. For whatever reason, this was her night to cook. But she had a choice nonetheless. I think it was at this moment that she could have gotten Jesus' attention, she had a choice in that very moment of what to do. Perhaps that moment was the moment Jesus noticed that Martha was working really hard. By the way, Jesus always notices. Martha chose to focus on herself. Can't you see what I'm doing? Perhaps there was an opportunity to simply tell the truth to Jesus. Jesus, I'm so busy. And I'm afraid of missing out. What if I miss the word you have for me? What if I miss what you want me to be in the world? What if I miss everything good because I'm having to make this meal? Perhaps Jesus could have calmed and stilled her heart in that moment. Assured her that she was seen, noticed, and will not be left out of the goodness of the king. Because she matters. That was, I think, Jesus' invitation to her. I know that's Jesus' invitation to you. What we know, Jesus said, was you were worried and upset about many things. Mary has chosen a better thing. It won't be taken away. Mary chose, and Martha was invited to the same singular focus on Jesus, a decision to let Jesus rule their house their neighborhood, their family, and their life. That's always the better way, isn't it? To let God be God and choose to be a creation. Let him be father and choose to be a daughter or a son of the king. That's always the better way. It's the way of calm and quiet, even in the midst of making dinner for an unexpected guest. The picture of the weaned child is not that we stay small, Dependent and infantile. Rather, it's a picture of a person who can now be at peace enough to enjoy a relationship with their parent, confident that the parent knows what's needed and is loving enough to provide it in the right moment. Whether it be food or clothing, meaning, value, place in the world, roles, jobs, it's a word picture of seek first the kingdom and I'll take care of everything you need. The invitation is 
to a still and quiet heart that lets God be in charge of the very real concerns, the very real cares and troubles in the world and all of our lives, and in a way that cultivates greater relationship and intimacy with God himself. A theologian, Arthur Weiser, wrote about it this way, no desire now comes between you and your God. For you're sure that God knows what you need before you even ask him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding the mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper now learns to desire God for himself and not as a means to fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has now shifted. He can now rest no longer in himself but in the God who richly loves. A weaned child can say no to the cares of the world. I can get involved, but they're not mine to fix. I can say no to the deceitfulness of wealth. I can be content with what I have. I can order my desires so that I'm no longer driven to achieve, to attain, to control. But I can give myself away in love and service to the very real callings that I have and that you do too. I'm now free to place my hope in something worthy of my life. It's God himself. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. That's how David ends the psalm. I can now place my hope in something worthy of my life. Oh Brian, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, the psalm is not an invitation to passivity. I've said this three times now. Where, where do you put your hand to the duties, tasks, and engagements of your various callings and invitation? But wherever you do that, there's the promise that what we can do with it is in rest and confidence and peace of one whose hope is in the Lord, who loves us more than we could ever imagine. Peterson puts it this way, and that's, and that is when Psalm 133 nurtures a quality of calm confidence and quiet strength that knows the difference between unruly arrogance and faithful aspiration. Knows how to discriminate between infantile dependency and childlike trust. And it's the heart that chooses to aspire to trust. In the midst of my life, with all of its cares and concerns and now responsibilities as a bishop, with all the duties and burdens, I've stilled and quieted my soul. God's got this. God's got me. I will put my trust in him. This psalm, this prayer literally takes 30 seconds to read. It's a 30-second reminder that you are not alone in the world. That there's something more important than you. Something bigger, more powerful, stronger, more full of goodness. That someone more powerful than the challenges that you face is with you every moment of the day. I think this is how this short little psalm worked in David's life, King David's life. He purposefully wrote just three little verses that he could carry with him through every single day. He took a mini retreat from the cares of the world, the siren call of wealth, and the constant desire for other things, things other than Jesus. 
And that's what this psalm has become after spending six hours with it 28 years ago. I carry it with me everywhere. It's with me. It's in me. It's a little touchstone that connects me back to the very real love of God for me. Not Bishop Brian, but Brian, son of the living God. Beloved, known, cared for, and led. And as we close this day, would you join me in a little mini retreat? Would you bow your heads and hearts? And as I read this psalm, would you silence all the cares of the world that I know are pressing into your life? Would you think about with me something that is troubling you, something concerning you, something that's weighing you down, something making you angry? That place you feel unnoticed, unseen, uncared for, overwhelmed. Oh Lord, our hearts are not lifted up. Our eyes are not raising too high. We're trying not to occupy ourselves with things that are too great and too marvelous for us. Would you help us put these things down that we care about? Maybe in your mind's eye, you need to set down these things that you are holding. And Lord, right now, we choose to try to calm and quiet ourselves. to be at peace with you, not needing something from you, but joying to simply being with you. Like weaned children who are deeply loved and are provided for in every way we need. Oh, church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and evermore. Amen.